0: Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. And in this season, we are addressing questions of biblical sexuality as we explore the 12 statements established by the PCA's report on human sexuality overwhelmingly received at the 2021 General Assembly. Today, we're going to look at statements three and statement four, original sin, and desire. The statement on original sin, I'll I'll begin with, that it establishes the clear doctrine of original sin as it states in its beginning. And again, this is in the show notes, a link to this report where you can read along or read later. The statement reads, we affirm that from the sin of our first parents, we have received an inherited guilt and an inherited depravity from this original corruption, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable Proceed all actual transgressions, all the outworkings of our corrupted nature, a corruption which remains in part even after regeneration, are truly and properly called sin. Every sin, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. The doctrine of original sin is really important when you consider a biblical understanding of human sexuality. And the basic doctrine is this, every human being inherited guilt and corruption. There's no one who escapes it. In a recent sermon, I mentioned how Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research partner every two years to take the theological temperature of the United States to help better understand today's culture and to understand the church and equip the church with better insights for discipleship. The survey uh, distinguishes between what U.S. adults said and what evangelicals said. It's really important to know what they Classified as an evangelical, it has no political affiliations. Four things marked an evangelical in this study. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It's important for me to encourage non-Christians to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that removes the penalty of my sin. And only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. That was what would classify them as an evangelical. When people were presented with this statement, everyone is born innocent in the sight of God. It is not surprising that 71% of U.S. adults agreed with such a statement. That doesn't surprise me. But 65% of evangelicals agreed. 71% under the age of 49 agreed. The Bible clearly teaches the concept of original sin, Romans 5, 12-19, Ephesians 2, 1-3, meaning that every human being inherits a sin nature from the time of their conception. In other words, we're not sinners because we sin, rather we sin because we're sinners. That's a fundamental doctrine. This truth is foundational for an accurate understanding of the gospel, for an accurate understanding of our need for God's grace. For an understanding of our fight with sexual sin and temptation and desires. One of the best parts of the 12 statements are the footnotes you may read. Consider A.A. Hodge's statement on mankind's corruption as he writes in his commentary on the confession of faith. He says, innate moral corruption remains in the regenerate as long as they live. And that all the feelings and actions prompted by this remaining corruption are truly of the nature of sin. Moral corruption remains in the regenerate. This is really important as we consider human sexuality and our battle as sexual sinners. The statement also mentions that every sin, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. Again, Lewis Burkhoff is helpful here in helping us understand what it means to distinguish original and actual. In theological language, actual sin is distinguished from the original sin we inherited from Adam. Actual should be understood in a comprehensive sense of the word, act. The term does not merely denote those external actions which are accomplished by means of the body, but all those conscious thoughts and volitions which spring from original sin. That's going to be really important when we start talking about desire. So the statement establishes a clear doctrine of original sin that is seemingly lacking in our country and the church. No wonder these issues are confusing and are a place where we need clarity. The statement on original sin also establishes the priority of repentance in the life of the re- in light of the revelation of this truth. It says we must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins particularly. That is, we ought to grieve for our own sin, hate our sin, turn from our sin unto God and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commands. John Calvin defines repentance as the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him, and it consists in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man and the vivification of the spirit. I love what our confession says in 15.2, that by repentance unto life, a sinner, seeing and sensing not only the danger, but also the filthiness and hatefulness of his sins, because they are contrary to God's holy nature and his righteous law, turns from all his sins to God in the realization that God promises mercy in Christ to those who repent, and so grieves for and hates his sin that he determines and endeavors to walk with God in all the ways that he commands. And based on that, the confession says no one should be satisfied with the general repentance. Rather, it is everyone's duty to endeavor to repent of each particular sin particularly. Why such emphasized language there? I'll say this. Particular repentance requires particular forgiveness and that will lead you to particular joy and that will transform you. General repentance flattens intimacy and thus reduces transforming power of being forgiven. This is deeply important when we consider the battle with sexual sin. Particular repentance and to particular forgiveness is the path. Third, the statement on original sin shows that believers in Jesus have real hope for progress in the Christian life. It says, Nevertheless, God does not wish for believers to live in perpetual misery for their sins, each of which are pardoned and mortified in Christ. By the Spirit of Christ, we are able to make spiritual progress and to do good works, not perfectly, but truly. Even our imperfect words are made acceptable through Christ, and God is pleased to accept and reward them as pleasing in his sight. So so it begins to emphasize the real hope for progress in in the Christian life. Yes, yes, it's true. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, as we sing in the hymn. But it's also true. Spotless Lamb of God is he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. When that hallelujah hits your heart, It changes sinners. So while sin remains in the heart of the regenerate, as Westminster Confession 6.5 states, during this life the corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated, even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all its expression are in fact really sin. There is also real gospel hope for transformation by the Holy Spirit, as Confession 16.3 states, their, meaning believers, ability to do good works is not at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. And in order that they may be to, enable to do these things, besides the graces believers have already see, received, there must also be an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit working in them both to will and to do God's good pleasure. I love that. An actual influence of the same Holy Spirit. This truth, however, should not cause believers to become negligent as though they were not bound to perform any duty without a special moving of the spirit. Rather, they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. Man, memorize Westminster Confession 16.3. I need an actual influence of the Holy Spirit. You think about being under the influence of alcohol that because you're under its influence, it guides how you talk, it guides how you think, it guides how you behave, it guides how you act. That's the hope of the Holy Spirit. And we don't just sit back passively waiting on this special moving. It says we should be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in us. So those sinners we are and sinners we remain, we have hope for good but not perfect works. Uh, What is a good work in the sight of God? Well, the Confession says that um, in 16.7, although the work's done by unregenerate men, and it begins to describe that they in themselves be things which God's commands and things which are useful to themselves and others, that in other words, unregenerate people can do good things and do things God says. Common grace we've talked about. Yet it's not a good work in the sight of God because why? It does not come from a heart purified by faith. It is not done in a right manner according to the word, and it is not done for the right purpose, which is to glorify God. So are believers capable of quote-unquote good works? Yes, because of the spirit at work within us. We can do things out of a heart of faith in a manner according to the word, purpose for the glory of God. Is it perfect? Absolutely not, but it is good. There is real hope for progress Even though the doctrine of original sin is true, and that is because, simply put, those sinners, because of the Holy Spirit in us and the redemption of Jesus, we do have real and true hope for change and for good works. Now, when we consider statement four on desire, it establishes really two things. Fallen desires are sinful and there is real hope for freedom and spiritual formation. Fallen desires are sinful. The statement says, statement four, we affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Summarize simply, if it is wrong to do it, it's wrong to want to do it. Both are sinful. In the sexual arena, the desire for sexual sin is called lust. Lust is specifically the desire to engage in sexual acts contrary to God's law. Lust is a desire rather than a decision. But lust is wrong, even if the decision is never made. Romans 6:11 through 12 says, "So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey what its passions, sin to sinful desires." First 1 Peter 1:14 1, is obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, the sinful desires. 1 Peter 2.11, Behold, I, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's sinful desires in us, and it, it tells us to abstain from them, to fight them. We'll talk about that in a minute. Heidelberg Catechism 113 is really helpful on covetous desires here. It says, what is the aim of the Tenth Commandment? I love this, that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. So clearly the statement shows that our desires are not Morally neutral. And it shows that as the Bible does. It says the se- experience of same sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. Now, we're going to talk about what we mean when we say put to death. Because mortification is not once for all mortar, murder. It's ongoing killing. Romans 8 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that that putting to death is an ongoing experience. So fallen desires are sinful. Our desires are not morally neutral. And there's a very helpful clarification from John Calvin in the footnote on James 1:14 through 15 as it relates to desire. That passage reads, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Calvin helps us understand that that passage should not be misunderstood as suggesting that fallen desire is something other than sin. Calvin explains. It seems, however, proper, and not according to the usage of Scripture, to restrict the word sin to outward works, as though indeed lust itself were not a sin, and as though corrupt desires remaining closed up within and suppressed were not so many sins. But as the use of a word is various, there is nothing unreasonable, if it be taken here as in many other places, for actual sin." And the papists ignorantly lay hold on this passage and seek to prove from it that vicious, yea, filthy, wicked, and the most abdominal lust are not sins, provided there is no assent. For James does not show when sin begins to be born, so for so as to be sin, and so accounted by God, but when it breaks forth. Now that last part is he saying uh, there's a difference in how people view this, that some say. That as long as there is no assent, the desire itself is not sin, but that is simply not in accord with neither the confessional nor biblical doctrine. As mentioned earlier, if it's wrong to do it, it's wrong to want to do it, and that comes from corruption of original sin. Now, I think we need to be here as well, carefully compassionate. It is really difficult at times to distinguish between temptation and desire is this coming from outside of me or inside of me? But what we know for sure is a desire for sin is sin. But finally, the statement shows there's real hope, real hope for freedom, real hope for spiritual formation. It says, nevertheless, we must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior, repentant Justified and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness of Christ and are able to please God by walking in the spirit. Read Romans 8, 3 through 6, that affirms this real hope for freedom and spiritual formation that is stated here in statement four with that nevertheless. And so, as, but, but I want to make sure we understand this, as we consider this hope for freedom and spiritual formation— We need to remain biblically realistic. I want to ask the question as we wrap up, how does one get rid of sinful desires? Well, obviously, it's in utter dependence on God's grace and his spirit. And as we depend, we are diligent. We diligently mortify sin, as Romans 8.13 says, and we diligently seek to live and keep God's commands. As Titus 2 says, we say no to sin. But let's be clear. What mortification is not, I've already said, mortification is not definitive murder of sin. It is not to utterly root out and destroy sin, that it should have no more hold at all, no residence in our hearts. We've heard the corruption remains and they regenerate. It is not just changing some outward aspects of sin. Mortification is not just the improvement of our natural constitution. It's not, mortification is not just when sin is diverted. Mortification, listen, is a habitual, that means ongoing, weakening of the lust, a constant fight and contention against sin with a degree of success in battle. What's the degree of success? That is dependent upon the grace of God and the work of the Spirit. We are at the mercy of God as to whether sinful desires are put to death once for all, or must be put to death every day. An example is, I know people who were alcoholics, and when they quit, they say, I never had another desire for another drink. I believe them, and I believe that was a great gift of God's grace and Holy Spirit. But I also know people that have been sober, and they say every day they wake up, And they want a drink. The removal of that sinful desire has not been granted to them by the Holy Spirit, by God's grace. It remains within them. And yet they fight it. They fight every day. Both are to the praise of his glorious grace. And that is an application when it comes to sexual desire and sexual sin. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Pillar and Ground. We look forward to joining with you in further episodes.